кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. As Ukraine fights for its sovereignty and independence, cracks are appearing in the Western coalition against Vladimir Putin. French President Emmanuel Macron has warned against humiliating Russia. Italy has floated a peace plan that would have Ukraine cede territory in exchange for peace. And talks are continuing in Turkey without Kiev's participation to ease the grain crisis that Russia created by blocking Ukraine's ports. And former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has called on Ukraine to give up territory to Russia to end the war, prompting Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to remark that the current year is 2022, not 1938. As the war in Ukraine enters a critical phase, how long can Western unity last? Well, stick around because we've got just the guests to talk about that today. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Riga is Tumas Hendrik Ilvis, who served as president of Estonia for two terms from 2006 to 2016. He also serves as Estonian foreign minister, ambassador to the United States, and as a member of the Estonian and European parliaments. These days, Thomas is a visiting professor at Tartu University and serves as a member of the Munich Security Conference's advisory board. Welcome back to the Vertical Talk. Always good to be back here. <clears throat> Always good to have you. And joining us from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. Thanks very much, Brian. Thanks for coming. So it seems to me that As always, Vladimir Putin is counting on the West's commitment to support Ukraine to wane over time and for Western unity and resolve to weaken. Um, this, after all, is what happened in the past, most notably in Georgia in 2008 and Ukraine in 2014. Emmanuel Macron's remarks suggesting he cares more about Putin's feelings than about Ukraine's sovereignty and independence suggest that Putin just may be right. Tom, is he How high is the risk that the Western coalition can fracture at this point? How does it look to you from Europe? Well, these views might be expressed by various leaders, but they're they're really not picking up a lot of support from the public. It's I think it's more clear in uh, in Germany, less so in France, where you have this kind of bizarre combination of the hard left and the hard right, which together make up a lot of people basically espousing pro-Putin views. Now, one of the things that's been said about the Macron thing, which we'll find out shortly whether it's true or not, is that, oh, this is all just pre-parliamentary electioneering. Well, we'll see what he says the day after. But, I mean, nonetheless, the three main countries uh, have taken, which everyone is talking about, France, Germany, and Italy, are taking somewhat different positions. I mean, what you have with Macron is his hypertrophied ego, And um, his vision of himself as this great visionary, uh, un grand visionnaire, 
that sees the rest of us mortals here who <laughs> just are not capable of. We have this, this sort of J. Arthur Prufrock in uh, Germany, where a, a moment will revise the decisions of the previous moment, or whatever the quote is from, from Prufrock, but just completely indecisive, and you'll say something, but then it'll just not happen. And what we see, unfortunately, is that not much is happening. And today, we found out that a whole set of weapons, a hard military, can't be sent probably until the end of the year because they promised it to Egypt. They have to get Egypt's permission now to send them to Ukraine. This is not looking bad, and it's certainly not doing much for a German reputation of efficiency. And then finally, you have Italy. Well, I'm not sure what's going on, because on the one hand, Draghi is has been fairly tough, but then again, he comes up with this idea that uh, implies territorial concessions. All of them ultimately, I fear, sort of have this idea that, well, if we can only get the Ukrainians to, to basically validate aggression, then we'll, have a, we'll be able to placate Putin and everything will be wonderful. I mean, this is based on the, most, the silliest of understandings of mm. how Russia operates, which, by the way, today, just to, I don't know if we'll get to it, but Putin actually said today, well, I mean, the Baltic states, those are all ancient Russian lands. When we beat Sweden's Karl Twelfth in the Battle of Narva, it was... We were just taking back what always belonged to us, which is a kind of an interesting approach to uh, things. Yes, I think some people in your country would take issue with that. That was the same speech in which Putin compared himself to Peter the Great, which caused me to look twice. I mean, the important speech, because you understand Peter the Twelfth was six foot six. Right. <laughs> I mean, what we're seeing is, is being driven by different forces in Germany and France and Italy. But again, this French position, this is not just Macron. I agree with you that his ego has a lot to do with this. But we all remember 2008, the Sarkozy plan to, to end the war in, in Georgia. And we saw how well that turned out. Um, D- David, what are your thoughts on this? Is this time different than the last time? Because Tom's right. Um, Macron's comments, Italy's the peace plan Italy floated. Kissinger's comments at Davos, none of these things seem to be getting any traction this time. Are we in a different environment this time in in, uh, what Putin's counting on, that the Western coalition is going to crack over time and get tired of this and just want to sue for peace? Is he wrong this time? Are we in a different environment? I I don't think he's right, but let's also be clear that these kinds of comments have a really demoralizing and discouraging impact on Ukraine and on Ukrainians and on the fighters on the front line in Ukraine uh, who hear about these kinds of comments. President Zelensky clearly did not like Kissinger's comments and oh, yeah. other comments. Uh, Foreign Minister Kuleba had a pretty strong response to President Macron's comment about not humiliating Russia. So it, it's getting the attention of the Ukrainians. And, and I think we need to be much more sensitive to and careful about what we say, because it could have an impact on some of the fighting. I think it also has the opposite effect on on the Russians and and those in the Kremlin who, as you've described it and Tom has described it, think that maybe there are splits developing within the West and that the West won't have the stamina 
to stand with the Ukrainians in the long run. I think it is imperative of us in the West, the rest of Europe, because Ukraine is part of Europe, not to say distinguish between Europe and Ukraine, but imperative on the rest of us to realize Ukrainians are the ones who are doing the fighting and the dying in this war. The least we could do is to stand with them, show solidarity, support them, uh, territorial concessions, ceasefires, agreements, uh, neutrality. It is incredibly unhelpful, whether it's gaining traction or not. It has a demoralizing impact on Ukraine. This shows that we're dealing with people shooting from the hip and don't know what they're talking about. Ukraine was neutral and it got them invaded. So this is really appalling. I mean, I once, you small country, but I I did usually know what I was talking about, you know? Now, one of the things that worries me now is that we're going to move into this old familiar territory of the United States, Canada, and the UK together with the NATO frontline state, the Eastern European states, the Baltics, Poland, Romania, against what, you know, former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld called old Europe back in when you were in government, David. Tom, do you see a risk of us moving in that direction? Because all the noise we're hearing, uh, with the exception of Kissinger, of course, but I'm not sure who listens to him anymore. With all the noise we're hearing, it's coming out of so-called old Europe. Could we be moving toward that kind of a split? I mean, I think that's what Putin is counting on. Well, those are the, precisely the people who have been dismissing, poo-pooing, patronizing the frontline states. You know, I mean, this goes back a long time. Our worries were were dismissed even before Georgia. Uh, as I've said before, I think on this podcast, I mean, we were told by certain some countries in NATO that whose diplomats couldn't distinguish a toaster oven from a laptop, that we didn't know what we were talking about when we had a a massive cyber attack. So they just refused to believe us. And then when, you know, we listen, and then we go on to 2008, when actually Sarkozy's peace plan wasn't bad. The problem was that he turned against it, which because it was the point about Russia, that you would suspend the partnership and cooperation agreement with Russia until the troops left. And then five weeks later at the council meeting where all the PMs are, or prime ministers, you know, he argues against his own plan, which he wins and carries, and then says, thank God, common sense prevailed. I mean, it's the plan. I mean, so we're not really dealing with... Uh, um, as the Germans would say, consequent thinking on the part of people. So it's it's a long tradition. And this is something where I think what we see is um, going back to from this temporary realization of what my New Jersey colleagues would say, oh, they were right. I censored <laughs> myself there because I'm not in New Jersey. Um, but the point is that there was this time from the invasion in, in February through March, and especially with Bucha, where people in Western Europe who had been dismissive of our concerns said, well, you know, they were right. They were right, talking about our warnings. But it seems that that was a temporary epiphany because I think we're back to like, oh, we, you know, let's not listen to those East Europeans, you know, let's... I mean, we already see that people balking over the idea of uh, putting more troops or agreeing to put more troops uh, into the frontline states at the NATO summit in two weeks. I mean, this is the kind, and we're going back to the status quo ante because, um, well, I don't know why, but I think the, there's still hope for making a deal.
Right. Uh, David, I know you, you want to jump in here and also also to respond to this. I mean, what do you think is driving this? Are these European countries, these Western European countries, most particularly Germany, France and Italy, do they have this illusion of returning to a pre-February 24th business as usual with Russia? Or is this being driven by fears of the economic fallout? And I know there's something else you wanted to, to add to what Tom was saying as well. Yeah, let me just start by picking up on what you asked Tom and his response. The picture in Europe, I think, is quite mixed. Um, if you look at other parts of Western Europe, the Brits have been absolutely terrific in their response yeah. to what's happening. Spain has been... Surprisingly, yes. Yeah. The Dutch have been good. So, so it's quite a mixed record throughout the continent. But let me highlight three other countries. I think the Czech response has been terrific. Fantastic. Uh, there were concerns about where that country was heading. And after the elections that ended the Babish regime... Yes. The Czech Republic has really been performing extraordinarily and well. And even President Zeman ate humble pie and said he was wrong, which is he, he shocking. Like he's had an epiphany. Exactly. Yes. Unlike a certain other leader who gave an interview the other day. Yes. Now we're going to get to that for sure. <laughs> Poland, where relations with the EU were quite strained, has really stepped up to the plate on this. Um, and then there's the, the final country I wanted to mention, which is Hungary has shown its true colors, unfortunately, yep. as well, or at least the government, where, where Orban is doing the dirty work of Putin inside the EU, and I worry possibly even inside NATO. So the situation with Hungary remains very concerning. Look, all, all leaders around the world are feeling the effects of uh, inflation. Uh, the food crisis is raising alarms. What to do about the Black Sea blockade imposed by the Russians is of great concern. Uh, but then we see the head of the African Union uh, go to meet right. Putin and side with the Russians. Um, that wasn't a great moment. And so right. by showing how eager we are to end this war, um, we're feeding into some of the worst instincts of other leaders elsewhere. No one wants this war to end faster and sooner than Ukrainians do, because they're the ones who are dying from this. But at the same time, given what Putin and the Russian forces have been doing to them, they also want to make sure this never, ever happens again. Yeah. And, and so that's why I think it's so important. I, I remember, I don't know if I fell for this or certainly felt uh, early on in, in the week in February when, when first Putin recognized DNR and LNR and then the day of the invasion. We saw, a, we thought, a revolution in German foreign yeah. and national security policy. Yep. Turns out it wasn't much of a revolution. There's still... It's better than it used to be, and Nord Stream 2 seems to be dead. Um, Germany is up and down in terms of weapons delivery. So so it, it's a complicated picture. And mm -hmm. last thing I'll say, and, and sorry for going on, but it, it's better Macron won than, than Marine Le Pen. So yeah. for all of the shortcomings of Macron, I'd rather deal with that than what we might have. Yeah, it's, his ego is better than Le Pen's crazy, that's for sure. Yes. I mean, the thing that irritates me the most about these calls for Ukraine to trade land for peace is that it's not just land. It's people. It's human beings. And we've seen what happens to those human beings in places like Bucha and Mariupol when they are under. I mean, I think we should ban the phrase land for peace from our vocabulary. These are these are Ukrainian citizens for peace. 
Um, on the German thing, yeah, it's one thing to make a speech in the Bundestag. It's another thing to get the bureaucracy um, to move. And while we're on the subject of Germany, Tom, I know you're dying to talk about Angela Merkel's blockbuster interview uh, yesterday. I mean, where she effectively said she had no regrets about blocking uh, Ukraine, getting a membership action plan to, uh, to to NATO. She has no regrets about keeping the Nord Stream 2, uh, Nord Stream 2 alive. Her comment that... Uh, she knew exactly what Putin was about, which is like, you knew what he was about. And she also said that, yeah, and I knew he, he wanted to destroy the European Union. Yet, I mean, I don't know, this, it strikes me as the ultimate in cynicism and, I don't know, uh, deceit to say that you knew, yet you did nothing about it. I mean, let alone talking about it to other people in Europe. I mean... Uh, and this kind of in stark contrast, but then when I think about other events, not only the 2008 refusal to give Ukraine and uh, Georgia map, which is she defends there, but even this, this thing that happened last August when uh, she and Macron decided that, well, Putin, Biden had a sum with Putin, we should have one too, and decided they were going to do it, and then the rest of us found out about it in a leaked mm -hmm. document in the Financial Times the day before the meeting was to take place, where it was also in a great act of solidarity. <laughs> My prime minister, Kaya Collins, was left alone to actually right. get out with, uh, with the big boys, which on the hand finally gives me a little bit of hope that uh, she could hold her own. That well, and not only she can, but the fact that uh, you know, if it's it is no longer the case that Germany and France decide they're going to do something, and the rest of Europe says, okay, it's not there anymore. It's too existential a problem for too many countries for us to allow this kind of uh, grandstanding that we see, you know, we, we were already annoyed with like NATO is brain dead, which was already right. shows what a perspicacious president he is. We're not, you know, I feel like the old, from the rock op opera Tommy, the who, we're not gonna take it. Right. <laughs> you know, we're just not gonna take it anymore. Well, I think this is one of the things that is finally getting home in Europe, that this is about European security. It's not something that's happening in a faraway country of which we know little, right? This is something that, that was just in Slovakia, which is right next door to Ukraine, obviously. You know, the, the conflict is felt very, very strongly there. I mean, they understand the geography of the situation. David, I wanted to bring you in on the American role in this, dude, drawing on your experience in, in government. I mean, the American role is tricky here. On one hand, American leadership is essential in order to keep this Western unity together. And what the president of the United States says and how he comports himself is really, really important. And I think Biden's done quite well so far in this, in this regard. Um, but on the other hand, America has to be very careful about being too heavy-handed in this situation. How, how are we doing and what can we be doing that we're not doing in order to kind of nip this in the bud, um, this, this, these fractures that we start with, that we're starting to see cracks appearing? Yeah, a couple things on this, and we talked about this before, Brian, but I think overall the administration has done a pretty good job. Um, I think if they had the intel showing that Putin was going to invade regardless of what we did when it came to weapons assistance, we should have been arming the Ukrainians so that they can defend themselves. So the IC got the, the intelligence community in the, in the US rather 
got it right that Putin was going to invade, but they got it completely wrong about how the war would play out because the IC thought it would be over in a matter of days. That then affected the administration's decision-making when it came to military assistance. If it's going to be over in a couple of days, what's the point of giving Ukraine military assistance? And of course, there were a few analysts who wrote pieces as late as January saying arming Ukraine won't make a difference. We shouldn't right. do it. I think those people have blood on their hands, frankly, as a result of... One of them is con continues to argue that they should the Ukraine should cave and stick with neutrality based on something that was talked about in March when the circumstances have, ch have changed 100%. I think the administration had it right the intelligence community about whether Putin would invade or not had it wrong about providing military assistance in the beginning. They're doing a much better job on that. But I, I think they've done a, a great job when it's come to sanctions for the most part. Um, but I think what the administration and the president himself need to stop doing is telling the world, but more importantly, telling Putin what we won't do. Right. Let Putin wonder what we might do. What one should not telegraph to our enemies what our limitations are, uh, because that opens up a whole can of worms for Putin to to. How do I finish that metaphor? Um, anyway, whatever <laughs> one does with a can of worms, go fishing. Um, and and so it would be much better for the U.S. to explain what it is doing um, and to simply say we're not going to comment on things uh, so that it doesn't telegraph what we won't do. I think that, you know, you look at the, the whole controversy over the MiGs, you look at the MLRS, the multi-launch rocket systems and everything, stop telling the public what we won't do. Um, and and then I think we have to be a little more careful about the things we release into the public. Uh, I, I think the administration did a very good job about uh, heading off some of the false flag idea operations that the Russians had and so on. I don't think the leak about Putin's health a week or two ago, I think it was in the New York Times or mm -hmm. the Guardian maybe, uh, about his health, cancer and all that, I, I don't think that's helpful uh, quite frankly, because it'll lead people to various conclusions that I don't think are terribly relevant. What we need to do, we meaning the West broadly, the international community, is to continue to arm Ukraine so that it beats the Russian forces, drives them out of Ukraine, tighten the noose as much as possible around Russia through sanctions, continue to bolster the defense of, of Estonia, the other Baltic states, other countries in the region, and to stop telling uh, the world what we won't do. Right. No, I, I would separate the MIGs out because I saw the MIGs. I think you agree with me, David. I, I saw the MIGs as kind of a breakdown of the interagency process. Right. The state right. wanted to do it. Pentagon didn't want to do it. It wasn't That's worked right. out properly in the interagency process. And the result was the kerfuffle we, we got out of that. The other things, though, the president saying the U.S. won't put any boots on the ground or the president saying that the United States won't give Ukraine weapon systems that can hit Russia. I mean, could you imagine in World War II if we said we weren't going to give the United Kingdom any weapons that could hit Nazi Germany? Um, but David, you've been in government. Why is the president doing that? Is there a logic behind that that you just disagree with and that we disagree with? Or is there any rhyme or reason? Well, to be fair to President Biden, I mean, he's got a lot of different pressures on him. He's got um, some elements within both the Democratic and the Republican Party that say this is none of our business. We shouldn't be engaged in this. Um, he's got domestic problems galore, uh, with inflation being at the top of the list, but the pandemic still isn't over. 
And I, I don't think there's been a very good job of coordination in the National Security Council to coordinate and give the best options to the president. Um, so I, I think you described some splits over the MIG issue, Ryan. I think that has continued over some other issues. His op-ed, President Biden's op-ed in the New York Times was a little over a week or so ago, was actually quite good um, in laying out the case. But but again, when he understands that he wants to continue to support Ukraine, but he also has a domestic constituency that he needs to reassure that we're not going to be sending troops uh, to fight the fight for them. Right. The simplest answer, I think, for the administration is to say, the Ukrainians aren't asking us to send soldiers right. to fight this battle for them. They right. are asking for some of our best weapons so that they can defend themselves so that we wouldn't have to go into this fight. Right. I think there's one more factor uh, at play in Europe, at least, which is the whole food impending food crisis. Not that I'm in a mood to give people, some of those countries, the benefit of the doubt. But I think they are worried about, I mean, this, they can envision hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people pouring into Europe. I think there's certainly an Italian concern yes. because of famine. Now, you'd think that that would lead them to take up what is a brilliant idea, which is have the European Union go in there and say, we are going to take this grain out. We're going to bring the grain to those areas, I mean, to the Sudan and all these other places that are going to run into famine this year. But that that's kind of the next step, which they haven't taken. Either. The other thing I was going to say, you know, when you quote Chamberlain about faraway quarrels between faraway peoples, we know little about. The problem is that <clears throat> while those peoples aren't so far away right. these days in our era, but they still don't know very much about them everybody underestimated the the ukrainians on the grain issue i mean there is a discussion going on i don't think we should do this to be really clear from the outset i wrote about this in my column for the atlantic council last week but there is some talk of perhaps easing sanctions on belarus in order to, for, to gain their cooperation to get those grains quickly to baltic seaports um going through poland is logistically difficult because of the different gauge systems on the rails and other logistical problems the easiest way is through belarus but that's a problem this is a legitimate discussion to have i don't think we should make that deal with the devil uh, to be really clear. But I do think it's a legitimate discussion to have. David, you wanted to, to, to say yeah, something. Yeah, look, I, I think easing sanctions on either Russia or Belarus over this is a terrible idea. Yes. Um, I mean, they are holding food hostage um, mm -hmm. and, and threatening the a famine of, of millions, as Tom was describing. Um, and so it leads me to, to two points that I think are, are important here, which is we need to do a much better job of explaining that if there is going to be a food crisis, if there is going to be hunger and famine, it lies, the responsibility for this lies solely with Mr. Putin. Yeah. Um, it is not the Ukrainians. It is not even Lukashenko at this point for, for this. This is because the Russians are blocking the export of Ukrainian agricultural products, in particular grain, um, to to Africa, to the Middle East, and elsewhere. Worrisome is today. Lavrov went to Turkey, which, as we know, is getting uh, first of all is not only threatening blocking um, Sweden and Finland's membership in NATO, but also is now making some bizarre accusations about Greece. And and on top of that, he may seem to have sided with the Russian view that it's the Ukrainians' fault that this grain is not moving. 
So this is, I don't know what's happening with Turkey. I mean, I would just add that in there with, uh, okay, there will be some of the allies we have to worry about besides uh, sort of uh, auto-Finlandized Hungary. Agreed. <laughs> Although, you know, the other side, of course, as you know, Tom, is that the Turks have actually done a very good job of providing some yeah. military assistance to the Ukrainians, particularly drones that have really had an impact on the fighting. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. Turkey is a, a problem on this in, in many ways. We, we also need to do a better job because you don't hear a lot of talk about it anymore. That Russia and Putin are being investigated for war crimes. Right. I think if we keep talking about this and remind the the international community and the publics that Putin is likely going to be indicted, yes, or gets brought to justice, unlikely. But if he is a war criminal, who the hell is going to want to deal with? Right. I, I think to the extent that we can make him radioactive, and, and that will at least uh, get some European leaders to think twice before they want to sit down with him. I mean, what, there have been 100 phone calls in total between Macron and Putin since yeah. the beginning of the year? We did a program here with three former war crimes prosecutors about a month or so ago, and they, it was pretty much unanimous that they got him dead to rights. Um, Tom, I wanted to get going back to the discussion of the American role and what the U.S. could and should be doing right now. How does this look to you from Europe? What would you like to see the United States doing that it's not doing? Or would you, what would you like to see it not doing that it is doing? Well, I, I, first of all, I mean, the first thing would be exactly what David said, which is stop saying, tell, telling everyone what the United States will not do. If you have constructive ambiguity regarding Taiwan, maybe you should have it regarding Ukraine as well, right? I mean, you have this concept of constructive ambiguity. Strategic ambiguity. Strategic, or oh, whatever. I mean, which the president seems to be abandoning or possibly well, giving his latest comments. He might be a little more ambiguous when it comes to uh, Ukraine and yeah. not really spell out everything he's not going to do. So I think that's one thing I would like to see. I think with the upcoming summit at NATO, I would, you know, I'd like to get stronger signals from the United States that obviously the frontline states need to be bolstered. Yes. That would be, um, I mean, there are so many things that really have not been done. I mean, just to go back in history again, I mean, basically the NATO did not give contingency planning to Poland and the Baltic states until 2012. They've been members in the case of Poland for 13 years and our case for eight years um, because, no, you know, you don't really need that because the Russians are not going to do anything. That's the kind, Those are the kind of problems we run into. And we can imagine the usual list of suspects saying, well, you know, this, is, this might be provocative if we put more troops into the Baltic state where everyone, every military person around says, there are not enough people. This tripwire force only means you're consigning, you know, a battalion or two to death in case there is a Russian attack because there are not enough here. So that would be the second thing. A third thing, I'd like to get some real strong statements from the U.S. about Turkey and Finland and Sweden because mm. that is such a strategic game changer. Uh, the entire issue of the Suwalki corridor and this little pimple called Kaliningrad, they all, that all disappears, right? I mean, right. it's not, 
Uh, because and when the minute that the, the Baltic Sea is a NATO lake, I mean, obviously, there's no way I can know what's going on with the um, you know sort of the sub Rosa diplomacy line with Schultz and with Macron, but I really do hope that there's some strong talk going on with the three wafflers right now. Perspective on what I'd like to see from the EU, which is candidate membership for, for yes. And Moldova. Sad for us to say, uh, Georgia is is another case, unfortunately. By the way, the European Parliament passed a resolution today calling for sanctions against Benzina Ivanashvili, which was terrific. That is fantastic, and I, I would like to see that followed up by our friends on the Hill over here. And I've been I've been calling for sanctions against Ivanishvili for a long time, framing them as again sanctions against this Russian oligarch who happens to have a, a Georgian surname. I think the EU needs to understand one: Ukraine deserves it. But two, what a blow it would be if they did not get it. Yes. And and I think the EU, for all of the requirements and hoops one has to jump through, um, they really need to perhaps, in this case, make a political decision. I mean, having actually having led the negotiations, candidate status just means we'll negotiate with you. I mean, what negotiations are horrible, horrible. No, no, I, Tom, I understand that. But but the point is, this is what they want, because they know they're not going to get membership this month. What they right. do want is to see that there is forward progress. Yes, yeah, I, I, mean, I that, hear what you're saying. That makes perfect sense, but it's not even going to, I mean, given their starting point, it's going to be a long, long haul. But, uh, but you got to start somewhere. you got to yeah, start somewhere, but yeah. It is a political decision. It is a political decision to say, yes, we accept you as candidate members, or a candidate member, and we will begin negotiations. It's also noteworthy that, in fact, Turkey was given candidate status in 1964. How's that going? (laughs) (laughs) No, I was uh, at the Globesec conference in in, in Bratislava, and the Ukrainian delegation is really worried that a lot of different European countries are getting a little bit wobbly about this. There was fears of the Netherlands. Um, France and Austria. Plus Germany, of course. Plus Germany, yeah. So this is, um, but regardless of how long the negotiations take, the symbolic value of Ukraine being given to this is is invaluable right now. It's invaluable. Um, Before we move into the second half, I just wanted to briefly get both of your thoughts on this. Like, have we learned the lessons, the West collectively, of 2008 and 2014? Um, we saw kind of relatively similar responses to 2008 and 2014, a little tougher in 2014, but not nearly tough enough. Tom, you're shaking your head no. Why not? Right. I mean, 2014 uh, was followed by Nord Stream in 2015, Nord Stream 2 being agreed to, and the reset, um, if not to leave the United States out of this. And my biggest fear is that uh, the slightest slowdown or sort of a move by Russia to even just be a little less butcher-like. Is the, oh, okay, now we have to get, we have to ease up on sanctions. That's not the case, I and mean, I think they're champing at the bit to give Putin a break. And you know, let's not humiliate him. Is like just that that understanding is is, is there. So uh, I'm not. I don't feel we've learned any serious lessons. I think that the Western part of the EU has learned that we actually have to take into account what those Eastern wogs think. But um, well, that's because, progress. 
Well, I mean, that is. It's just it's not it's not really enough. Right. Um, and so that is one of my biggest fears. We have uh, 2008 and 2014 redux. Brian, what I would say is if we move from not just freezing but seizing foreign hard currency reserves, that to me would be a demonstration that we have learned. I, I realize it's not easy. You can't do it with the snap of the fingers. Some, in some countries, you might need legislative uh, adjustments for it. But if we take what is estimated to be around $300 billion and make sure that never goes back to Russia, but is in fact given Give to Ukraine, caused Ukraine, to me, that would be uh, crossing a bridge in a good way. Yeah, from your lips to God's ears. Um, in a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at how fears of escalation are causing the West to self-deter in Ukraine and how that plays right into Putin's hands. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from the lovely Latvian capital of Riga is Thomas Hendrik Ilvis, who served as president of Estonia for two terms from 2006 to 2016. Thomas also served as Estonian foreign minister, ambassador to the United States, and as a member of the Estonian and European parliaments. These days, he's a visiting professor at Tartu University and serves as a member of the Munich Security Conference's advisory board. And joining us from Dallas, Texas, is David Kramer, who served as assistant secretary of state for democracy, human rights, and labor in the administration of U.S. President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review, as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже за свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности. Годом вас. С новым веком. Vladimir Putin's threats to expand the war and strike new targets in Ukraine if the West provides Ukraine with long-range weapons it's been seeking didn't work this time. Both the United States and the United Kingdom are following through with the weapons deliveries. But Putin's threats, which have included implicit nuclear blackmail, have given the West pause in supporting Ukraine in the past. Part of this is rooted in fears of escalation on the part of the West, and part of it is rooted in the erroneous myth that Putin doesn't back down. David, Putin has been playing this card for a long time and the West keeps falling for it. Why? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the way you phrase it is exactly right, which is when he gets a bloody nose, he does back down. For uh, in 2015, when the Turks shot down a Russian military yep. jet that violated Turkish airspace, the Russians didn't do anything. And in fact, the Russian ambassador was assassinated a little while after that. In 2018, February 2018, um, the Wagner mercenaries in Syria threatening U.S. forces there. We warned them to back off. They didn't. We bombed and killed probably two to 400 Wagner mercenaries. The Russians didn't say a damn word about that. 
And, and so I think we have to recognize that Putin does not want a confrontation with NATO. Right. Um, he has not, for all the threat and, you know, some of the bombing near the uh, Ukrainian-Polish border, he has not attacked anything that is in NATO territory. And so I, I think we have to remind ourselves that we, in fact, are uh, an imposing uh, force and that we shouldn't give in to all these threats and, and bluster coming from Putin or Lavrov or or Shoigu or Gerasimov or anyone else for that matter. Yeah, I, I do think that Biden was right in making it clear that if Putin used some weapon of mass destruction, that there would be a serious response from the international community. Here, I think ambiguity is good. We don't have to spell out what it is we do, but I imagine we have thought about what we would do in the event such a uh, weapon was used. So uh, Putin and Lavrov can threaten all they want. Uh, the Ukrainians are the ones who are pushing back on them, and they can't they can't deal with Ukraine. They're not going to pick a fight with us, as far as I'm concerned. Tom, your thoughts? Yeah, basically, I, I agree with uh, David. I mean, it's uh, Putin, and this is it's not just Putin. It is it goes back to the possibly apocryphal Lenin statement about you know when you, when you have a bayonet, if you if you uh, hit mush, keep pushing. If you hit steel, pull back. I mean, that's really what it is. Uh, I don't know whether L Lenin said it or not, but it is a, certainly a good description of Russian behavior and of Soviet behavior as well. Go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. We can go back to the uh, Berlin blockade. I mean, uh, when you stand up to them, then they won't go further. I'm actually working on an article with our mutual friend, Maria Snegovaya, about this to look at, like, to push back on this myth that Putin never backs down. And when you try to find evidence of this, I mean, everybody goes back to the exact same thing. It's this um, this this little passage in Putin's biography about the, the rat that was cornered in his communal apartment in Leningrad in, when he was a child and that, that he's going to behave like that rat. Um, which we don't even know if that damn story is true, quite frankly, right? It's it's the only source on that is Putin himself, and I, I would take that source with a grain of salt. But nevertheless, this myth persists. Putin has created this myth that he's never going to back down when, in fact, over time, he does. Um, I'm wondering if, in this instance, we can finally break that myth once and for all. What do you guys think? Well, it's a myth that's, that's actively uh, believed and perhaps even propagated, and that's the problem. Yeah, I mean, this is rule 101 when it comes to propaganda. I mean, if it, it's, it's like the bayonet. If it works, you keep doing it. If it doesn't work, you, find, you start doing something else. Stop believing this nonsense. Right. Now, as all as these threats were, as Putin was making these threats, which certainly got a lot of attention here in the U.S., I did a series of media hits just in response to those threats. Every time Putin makes these threats, we tend to hyperventilate. These threats were backed by a little bit of concrete action. The first strike on Kyiv in, in a while. We had Russia, something that didn't get nearly enough attention, in my opinion, moving nuclear-capable Iskander missiles into Belarus. They're not nuclear-armed at this point, as far as we know, but they're nuclear-capable. They can hit targets in not just central Ukraine, but western Ukraine as well. David, how should we handle something like that? This isn't just Putin's words. We've got Iskander nuclear-capable missiles being moved into Belarus right now. Per more Pershings in Poland. 
Yeah, David, do you agree? That is one way. I mean, look, Brian, you, you've written about this and know this better than I do, but essentially Putin has taken over Belarus. Right. Um, and so this is almost forward deployment on extended Russian territory to a large degree. No, no disrespect to the uh, tremendously brave people of Belarus who have been resisting uh, their country's involvement in this conflict. Um, but keep in mind that strike on Kiev, it is worth pointing out, but happened on Ukrainian territory. It didn't happen beyond Ukrainian territory, right. despite all the threats that they would go after the sources that are providing the arms assistance to the Ukrainians. They're not going to cross that line. Yeah, I would agree as well. We're all in violent agreement. Yeah, but, but let me say one other thing, which is you hear a lot of Western commentators say that those of us who take the position that we need to support the Ukrainians almost no matter what are willing to die and fight to the last Ukrainian. That line is so grossly offensive yes. to the Ukrainians who would fight whether we support and aid them or not. They are fighting for their country, for their land, for their freedom. And whether we provide military assistance or not, they are not going to back down and they will fight to the very end. So the Western commentators and analysts who use that line, frankly, should know better. The fear and talk about use of a weapon of mass destruction, this is exactly what the Russians are trying to do. They are trying to get us to tie our hands behind our back. We, that we become paralyzed by fear of, of escalation. Um, we, we just can't fall for this. Be prepared for every scenario, but don't get paralyzed by possibilities. This is, this is why you should read Hal Brand's recent book, Twilight Struggle. Or, I mean, basically, we're, I think we're in the situation where the United States was, that was in, in the 1946, not really gotten understanding what's going on, not really figuring out how to deal with this. Um, finally, they, some kind of clarity appeared with the long telegram from Kennan. At least focused minds. I mean, Kennan didn't actually like much of what followed, but nonetheless, the point is that focused minds on how, what the what the sources of Russian behavior are, to quote the title. And you know, we have forgotten those those messages. Those sources remain the same. And I mean, if you read Keir Giles's book, right. uh, nothing changed. They're yep. still acting the same way, but. What is important is that we have 75 years of experience with this kind of behavior. And let's see what worked. And what certainly was something that worked was, be it the case of, of the Berlin blockade or of making NATO, is not being wimpy, but just saying, we're going to now, we are going to push back on this kind of expansionism. And expansionism was what they were worried about in 1946, 47, 48. And that's what we're worried about now. So what did the smarter people do uh, in those years? They, they came up with a strategy and with a policy, not with ad hoc, occasionally walked back statements. In this case, let's remember, the Russians have met their match uh, with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are putting up an unbelievably heroic battle against them. They have pushed them out of parts of Ukrainian territory that after February 24th, the Russians were, were occupying, not controlling. And the Ukrainians, if their estimates are even close to right, the Russians have lost more than 30,000 troops yeah. in this conflict. Yeah. 
And, and it's an astounding number. Yeah. Another general was just killed the other day, yeah. even confirmed by Russian sources. So the Russians were grossly overestimating themselves and Western analysts overestimated their abilities. Uh, the Russians grossly underestimated the Ukrainians and many Western analysts yeah. underestimated the Ukrainians. Let's give the Ukrainians their due and let's not blow the Russians up into this unbeatable army. You hear the ebbs and flows of the fighting that the Ukrainians are losing now and the Russians are winning. Really? I don't think so. And, and let's stand with, with the Ukrainians who have not just the, the moral argument on their side, but the, the right argument when it comes to our national interests. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the narrative seems to be shifting towards the Russians winning, but that long-range artillery hasn't really gotten to the front yet, and that could be a game-changer in eastern Ukraine. I wanted to kind of put a bow on this. I kind of want to circle around to Tom's comments about 1946, 1947, because I very much do believe that that's where we are right now. However this ends, I think we're moving into a kind of a, a Cold War-style environment with Russia, but... What's being decided on the ground in Ukraine is where those lines are going to be drawn. What it looks like we're now entering into is a long slog war of attrition in the east and in the south. It's a race against time in a lot of ways to, to bring it all back to what we were talking about in the first half, whether the Western unity can hold out um, throughout that to continue supporting Ukraine. And I was just wondering how the two of you see this playing out. I know we don't have a crystal ball. I had our, our common friend, General Ben Hodges, on the, on the podcast a few weeks back. He's very optimistic and very bullish on this. He thinks basically that by the end of the year, Ukraine can push Russia back to the February 24th lines. He's a three-star general. I'm not, so I'm certainly not going to argue with him about military matters, although that does seem optimistic to me. I hope to God he's right. David, what do you think? How do you see this playing out now? Because we are pretty much deciding where the Cold War lines are going to be drawn. I am confident in the Ukrainians' ability to prevail in this. Um, just as importantly, the vast majority of the Ukrainians are confident in their ability yep. to prevail. So they have the popular support behind them. They have the uh, moral arguments behind them. Um, and they have demonstrated they have the military capabilities as well, mm -hmm. as long as the West keeps providing assistance. I, I think what we need to think much more seriously about, I, I'm not predicting this, I'm saying it's a possibility, is a Russian military collapse. I'm not convinced that the Russians can sustain this. You hear a lot of talk now, particularly with the slugfest that's going on between Russians and Ukrainians, that the Ukrainians are losing a lot, and, and they are. I'm not minimizing this, but the Russians are too. And, and you hear all these reports about disaffected Russian soldiers and refusing to follow orders and so on. It's not gonna get better for the Russians. And so I think we have to start thinking much more seriously whether Putin can sustain this campaign. I do think Ukrainians and Zelensky can because they're fighting for their country. An added fringe benefit to this is that if Ukraine wins, and David, you mentioned Belarus, which has effectively been occupied by Russia. If Ukraine wins and Russia's weakened, we could see a scenario where Belarus falls Absolutely. too. And then we could see the, the geostrategic map of Europe changed radically. Tom, you get the last word since you're the only president on this podcast. I, I would just get nastier, frankly. It's clear that if you're going to have a trench war, who's got the better, more accurate artillery will do more damage because the trench, their trenches are filled with soldiers on either side. The more you can demoralize the Russians, the better. Uh, and I would, I would step up uh, what RL does, frankly, uh, because... Uh, 
you know, when I read about a hundred Buryats uh, having a shooting battle with Kadyrovites over loot, right? I, I mean, this is not. This is like a pretty, pretty low-grade bunch of soldiers who I think can be really. I mean, we can do some really nice, not nice things with them. I mean, mm. in psyops. Uh, and I would be pushing that, which we have not done enough, I think, that, you know, this is a real war. We, our task should be to demoralize the Russians, not only by, with with high-grade weapons in the, that we give to the Ukrainians, but whatever means necessary. And frankly, after the, the intervention in the Russia, by the Russians in elections in Europe and the United States, I have no problem with giving it back to them. I just hope that when history looks back on this, the verdict is, boy, the, the international community blew it. They didn't do everything they could to support Ukraine and miss an opportunity to deal a fatal blow to Putin and Putinism. No, I, I hope they look back and say the international community did it and, did, and dealt that fatal blow. So well, on that note, we'll wrap it up as I'm looking at the clock. That's all we have time for today. And if I keep going, I could go all day, but then my producers would probably impose sanctions on me and we'll wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Riga has been Thomas Hendrik Ilvis, who served as president of Estonia for two terms from 2006 to 2016, while he also served as Estonian foreign minister, ambassador to the United States, and as a member of the Estonian and European parliaments. These days, Thomas is a visiting professor at Tartu University and serves as a member of the Munich Security Council Conference's advisory board. Joining me from Dallas, Texas, has been David Kramer, who served as assistant secretary of state for democracy, human rights, and labor in the administration of President George W. Bush, and David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, he serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Thank you, gentlemen, for an enlightening discussion, and I'm happy to read out your entire bios. Um, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Dylan Holberg is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Dylan also handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning my many, many messes, and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 